go. All right, cool. Nice. All right. Um, yeah, so that was interesting. So, yeah, yeah I, 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 my assumption is that um, they get a lot more deliveries for hard seltzer than they do for mundane Sel- seltzer. Soft seltzer. But they carry uh, strawberry Waterloo, which is the Fuck absolute you, nectar man. of the gods. Fuck you. Yeah, it's super good. So I, I ordered some, and then he got here, and you were giving me shit because I, he was running late, and I didn't want him to, like, call in the middle of our episode. <laughs> yeah. And then he got here, and he tried to card me for the seltzers, and I had to, like, talk him into, like, not doing that because, you know, <laughs> if I don't have to have, like, a face-to-face interaction yeah. right now with everything going on, like, I try to avoid it. And so buddy, finally, buddy, that's just flavored bubbly water, yeah, man. Yeah, man. That's what I said. I was like, dude, that is just regular old. And you, I didn't, yeah. did you call me in the middle of it? No, you called me. Oh, I must have just accidentally hit call while my phone was in my hand. I know. I was like, I'm like why? all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, what is like, Evan doing you here? You're just like, you're just, your face is just on my phone. And I didn't even have time to stop and think about it. Cause all of a sudden, I hear you say, so what? He doesn't have cables. And I'm like, what? And so the guy calls me from my porch and is like, hey, man, can I get a jump? And Evan's already yeah. giving me a hard time because I'm running late for the show on account of I need my Celsius. And yeah. next thing you know, this guy, you know, poor guy, his car breaks down. And I sort of lied because I just I do have cables, but I don't know where they are. And I didn't want to go hunting for them. And I just yeah. ran into this issue with my roommate like last week or last month, something where I couldn't find my cables. And I was like, I don't have cables. And he's like, oh, don't worry. I do. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to. It's cold out. Like, yeah. I don't so, have a car. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. the reason I don't have cables is because I don't have a car. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, if I if I had cables, I would have a car to put them in. So yeah. No, sorry. But then even so, then, so that's like, funny. So all of a sudden you just look down and I'm like, hey, buddy. Yeah, and you're just like there, and I was like, did he just call me? Did I pick up? I wasn't no, sure what yeah, happened. You must have just accidentally like butt dialed me. Yeah, I had my phone in my hand, and yeah. I must have just because I was open to texting you because you were being indignant. Anyway. <laughs> So that's that's that. That's the episode. Yeah. Um, so have well, a great week, everybody. Thanks yeah. for tuning in. I'm drinking a pineapple lemonade. Yeah, that's fine. It's not as good as a as a. No, it's not. I do prefer the strawberry. Yeah, strawberry Waterloo is a top three flavor for me. Yeah, it's 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 remarkably good. I'm Chester Nutsack Dolt, and welcome to another edition of Left Unsolved. Have you ever felt totally at home with a particular group of friends? So comfortable and self-assured in their company that you felt as though nothing could harm you? Did you ever get naked with those friends and fool around on a mountain, filled with lust and youthful abandon, shirking responsibilities in favor of indulging fully in the wanton, sex-filled springtime of youth? Assuming you answered yes to all of the above, you might find yourself relating to the subjects of today's case from the left unsolved files. What began as a fun-filled romp through the Ural Mountains one cold Thursday morning in February of 1959 would end up casting a grisly stain over the brooding edifice known to locals as Death Mountain. The investigation that would ensue and the questions it dredged up have left behind one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the modern age. Intrigue, violence, 
and the cool yet supple grip of death's soft hand on the quaking shoulder of innocence. All this and more on tonight's special edition of Left Unsolved. Welcome to Left Unread, a show about things that happen that we feel a particular way about. Uh, we did not change our name, and no, we did not suddenly decide to become a true crime podcast. Um, Just want to reiterate, we are not a true crime <laughs> podcast. Yes, no. call us that. We have, uh, we have differing opinions on that particular genre, um, but today we are kind of veering <laughs> into that territory for a particularly fun bit of Soviet history. Uh, that's right. Today, folks, we are going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, I want to note, I mean, we talk about all sorts of stuff, but I feel like this one, there's some particularly graphic and intense descriptions of injuries that are um, caused by <laughs> sources unknown. <laughs> all right, and that's where my, that's where my, uh, my true crime podcast persona ends, because we're not going to do the whole episode like that. Yeah, we kind of do know at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, okay, so yes and no, but there's a pretty good theory. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so um, the Dyatlov Pass incident. So Yes. Yes. It's um, fun to talk about. But yeah, well, before we get into it, uh, do we have a sponsor <clears throat> today? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, all right, folks, well, today's episode is brought to you by Moose Wilkerson's Rootin' Tootin' Funtime Cryptid Hunt Adventure Park. The only adventure park that hunts mythical creatures and not your wallet. Unlike that cat Moses Wilkerson and his spraying and praying cryptozoological safari extravaganza. So grab the whole family, skedaddle on down, and strap in for a wet and wild time hunting your favorite cryptids from around the world. Whether it's the Himalayan snow goat Yeti shoot 'em up or the Mothman <laughs> Mountain Junction Pass, it's sure to be a real blast for the kids and mom and dad. We've got such world-famous attractions as Nessie's Lock and Loaded Riverboat Jamboree, <laughs> the Bigfoot Brouhaha and Barbecue Grill, and the Abra Chupacabra Alakazam Mystic Funhouse. We'll have the whole family laughing so hard you think you were a pack of Jersey Devils. So come on down tomorrow and experience the thrill of the cryptozoological world. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Do the kids get, like, live ammo? or what? It, what so what are they doing in there? Yeah, yeah, it's all live ammo. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Just yeah. So what do they just? They just dress up like a like a <laughs> like a dog or something as Nessie. Yeah, the, the famous cryptid known as a dog. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, that's great. It's a good time, and honestly, I mean, you know our philosophy here at Left Unread. It's better to start your kids out young when you're teaching them how to use your gun, um, yeah. Because you never know when you know the ghost of Barack Obama. Is gonna come and try to try to take it away from them. Yeah, um, he's not dead yet, but uh, you know, whatever yeah. poetic license. 
Yeah. Um, and remember, awesome. you want to go to Moose Wilkerson's, not Moses Wilkerson's. Yeah, Moses Wilkerson is is his is less fun. Yeah, it's not that cool. It's not that cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks yep. so much to them for that. That's that's really good. Yep. Um, all right. Cool. So you want to dive in? Let's let's dive in, bud. All right, man. Get your bathing caps on, folks. Um, all right. So yeah. So the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, I, I guess I want to say that it's like a relatively well-known topic. Um, there have been other podcasts and like hokey history channel TV shows and um, unsolved mystery type things about it. Um, there's also like some pretty cool stuff uh, that you can find like on YouTube and things. And I'll sort of mention that in a little bit because um, purely for the <coughs> visual aspect, because there are lots and lots of, of photos linked to this. Um, no, but Sancho, yeah, you can't so, be on the podcast. <laughs> You can't. Sancho the cat wants to be on the podcast. He's just yeah, dude. I feel like he's always he's always here for the start. Yeah, he and is. then and you then start he gets yelling because he... I because I don't like sit there and pet him the yeah. entire time. He's like, all right, well, fuck you then. Listen, man, he's always looking at that stupid shiny box of his. <laughs> um, well, you know, hopefully one day Sancho will learn to appreciate his father's work. He ain't gonna appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to dive into Dyatlov Pass for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, first and foremost, just because we've been doing a lot of like really, not that this isn't serious, but lots of like, uh, you know, longer two-part episodes. And I wanted to, yeah. you know, you're in the midst of one right now, and I wanted to kind of divvy it up with something a little different. Um, but there yes, have sir. actually been recently this year, there have been some new developments to this particular case, which um, is like a 62 year old case. And so um, it's always fun for me and Evan to try to link uh, old stuff to new stuff. And I think that's, you know, like one of the oldest adages about history is, you know, you're trying to learn about the past to see how it impacts the present. So anytime yeah, some kind sure. of new thing comes up that has to do with one of these old cool stories, it's always sort of inspiring to do an episode. Um, and so uh, reason two being that I've, I've been reading this awesome and um, pretty thoroughly researched book by a guy named Donnie Icar or Iker. Um, and the book is called Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident. Um, so this came out in 2013, and it was pretty popular. Sort of brought the notion of this case to the forefront for a lot of American audiences. <laughs> and you'll see that like a lot of the... Um, movies, and we'll talk about Evan and I both watched a a really good movie. Um, But so a lot of the movies and the podcasts and stuff also sort of came out in 2013, so I think he sort of dredged up um, a lot of interest in this. Um, Because, you know, prior to this, there it was not as well known outside of the former Soviet Union. Um, And even there, it was kind of secret for a long time, which is a little strange, but a lot of things in Russia were secret and they weren't secret for crazy reasons. So who knows? Um, yeah. So that book, which I, I highly recommend, uh, kind of jumps back and forth between the events of 1959. And then he ended up taking a contemporary trip in like 2012 and 2013 to Russia. And he ended yep. up getting a lot of really good um, primary source in- information from survivors and um, secondary source information from people that were sort of involved in the search and things like that. So wherever that info is sort of relevant, I've sort of tucked it into my research, but I'm not really going to talk too much about like his trip because it's really interesting and you should totally read the book, but um, I don't feel the need to like tell his story too much on our show. Um, yeah. So I'm going to focus more on the parts. He can that... tell it on his show. Yeah, exactly. And um, apparently that book did pretty well. Yeah. Um, but one thing that the other reason that I'm talking so much about him, I, I did really like the way that he framed the book. So this story for a long time has been kind of relegated to like 
you know, sort of like those cryptid stories where it's this sort of Roswell style, like, ooh, hokey crystals from Sedona type uh, yeah. unsolved mystery paranormal bullshit. And people sort of forget that this is a real human tragedy that actually happened to real people. And um, especially in the U.S., may, hopefully not as much anymore, but definitely at the time, um, things that happened in the Soviet Union were sort of always framed uh, in a negative light, sort of no matter yeah, what was sure. going on. Um, and this really yeah, isn't... everything was some shadowy sort of cover-up. Right. And yeah. I think there's a lot to suggest that there's more to this story than that, you know. Um, I've come away from reading that book sort of feeling like more like this was sort of a human story um, about friendship and endurance and um, trust between comrades and, and people that were... I mean, I didn't even really use comrade on purpose, but they were yeah. also <laughs> all super, super into communism for the most part. So... Um, I just think it's a more interesting story in certain respects than it gets represented as. So, um, But that being said, it actually might be an alien conspiracy, so it is fun and worth talking about. Yeah, so I guess first of all, I'll, I'll start with some backstory. Um, so as I've mentioned, this story takes predominantly in early takes place predominantly in early 1959 um, in the Ural Mountain Range of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll break that little tidbit kind of down into two parts. So 1959 is actually a really interesting time in Soviet history, and it's one that we don't really learn a lot about um, in the U.S. because all of Soviet history is sort of one big yeah. long bad event in terms of you know, at least according to our school curriculum. So Yeah, um, I mean, I would say that probably like the late 50s, early 60s was probably when the Soviet Union was strongest. Yeah. Like you could argue that that was the height of it. I mean, you know, that's when they won the space race with Mm -hmm. Sputnik, um, which shocked the world that they were the first ones to do that. (laughs) And, you know, they suffered insane tragedy defeating the Nazis in World War II. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like 24 million people died. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of impossible to come back from that. But... This is before the failures of Leonid Brezhnev, who basically oversaw the the beginning of the collapse. But yeah, yeah, this is this really is sort of a little mini golden age um, for the mm-hmm. Soviet Union. So, um, as I say here, the in the mid fifties or the early sixties, sixties, uh, the USSR is in sort of a cultural reawakening. Um, so Stalin, who everybody knows, uh, Uncle Stalin, he died in 1953. And starting sort of immediately, um, Nikita Khrushchev began maneuvering himself into the kind of de facto head of state position in the USSR. Um, that position... And he was is, a military man. He was. Yep. Um, and all of this could be its own episode. I'm going to paint in really broad strokes. Um, yeah. and Evan might have some fun little tidbits for you, but... I'm not, like, an expert in this whole story. Um, so I'm just going to sort of talk about the parts that pertain directly to, like, our story today. Um, yep. But, yeah, so Nikita Khrushchev, he begins maneuvering himself into the de facto head of state position, which in the USSR was kind of a nebulous thing usually, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not always one. It's not like saying he became the next president. Like, yeah, different chairmen and different heads in the military. Yeah, and yeah it's also like sometimes they were both head of government and head of party. Right. Um, sometimes the head of government was not the head of the party, but right. the head of the party was, generally speaking, um, the, um, the the premier, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, the chairman of, of the Supreme Soviet. I think he I, was, I, right? He was the chairman of the Communist Party, but then he was also the... Yeah. 
He was something. He and he was a yeah, military it, man. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Like you said, it was like very nebulous. You know, like yeah. being head of government didn't mean that you were head of the Soviet Union. Right. You know, being the leader of the Communist Party, and so there were some people who had very very short ones, um, short I guess quote unquote reigns, and then some like Brezhnev who were like twenty years. Yeah, Khrushchev I think was like a solid seven or eight years. He was in. Charge. Yeah, I think he was about eight or nine. Yeah, because he but, was like. Um, he, like, fully took over in, I think, about 56. Yeah. Um, and then it was, like, 64 when he kind of fell out. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, yeah, so, right, he sort of started in 53, but, yeah, wasn't yeah. really fully in charge until probably 55, 56. Yeah, to um, fully consolidated. But right away in 53, he started uh, really pushing yeah. for something that we now know as, you know, de-Stalinization. Um, yeah, liberalization. Right. And yeah. it was an idea that, like, he just sort of wanted to withdraw a little bit from some of these stricter, more intense, more totalitarian policies um, that Stalin had implemented. And, um, you know, contrary to popular belief, not everything Stalin did was, like, objectively awful, but he certainly yeah. was um, interested in preserving his own position yeah. and had instituted a lot of things that were oppressive to a certain degree yeah. to the people in the country. Yeah, um, and if I could, uh, just a quick aside, too, you know, there's one thing that, you know, as I've, um, studied more about just like communist history like one thing that you really realize is that like a lot of things about especially like the soviet union things that you also hear about china a lot of it really is you know like we like to think that they did propaganda and that we didn't but a lot of it's propaganda you know oh, yeah. i even remember when i was in high school hearing about like the famine in ukraine it was called the Holodomor, and it was like an intentional genocide with like 10, 15 million people dead. But even now, there's like, if you look up, look it up now, the the like accepted number is more like 2 million people died. And that is, there's a lot of, uh, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but there's no consensus on that. So even in, you know, like 15 years, there's been that kind of movement on it. Yeah, there are definitely, and, and again, we could do like a whole episode because this whole period of time <laughs> yeah. is completely fascinating. Um, and I, I think it certainly bears further examination. And my guess is that we'll probably dive more into yeah. a lot of these players in later episodes of the show because it is, it is really worth noting that the Soviets mm -hmm. were adept at propaganda, but people sometimes yeah. forget that we also are. And uh, yeah, I mean, dude, look Cold at like, US propaganda is psychotic. I mean, even now, like, look at victims of communism, uh, which is like a like a huge like uh, basically like CIA think tank. Sure. The victims of communism, and um, they list uh, all of the global deaths of COVID as deaths attributed directly to communism. Right. <laughs> even though there's like not, you could argue there's not even a communist country on earth anymore. Right. Oh, uh, even though yes, I know there's some communist parties, but <laughs> still, and the vast majority of deaths are under capitalism. But regardless. Yeah. I, we digress. Um, yeah. So under Stalin, higher education, universities, and the pursuit of learning or specialization in fields outside the sort of immediate scope of his plan for industrial and agricultural reform had been heavily, like, I mean, to put it lightly, we'll say de-emphasized, but, yeah. I mean, more than that, like, <laughs> certain uh, yeah. intellectuals were rounded up and disappeared and all kinds of things. Um, so in addition to that, though, the pursuit of things that, like, today we think of as hobbies... Um, or just generally directing your efforts away from working directly towards the betterment of the state. So any kind of you time or things that you were uh, just doing purely for enjoyment or for your own benefit um, were sort of, I don't want to overstate it, but they were not uh, given state sponsorship, right? Yeah. So things like 
hiking for the sake of hiking would always be sort of de-emphasized in favor of, well, if you like the outdoors so much, why don't you go and work on a communal farm, right? And that was yeah. the sort of party line. Um, again, it's a gross gross oversimplification, but we're just taking, you know, talking about facts that are relevant to yeah. history. Um, so under Khrushchev's de-Stalinization efforts, higher education becomes a much higher priority. Um, and so young Soviets who show promise in fields like engineering, chemistry, biology, um, and then, I mean, even to a lesser extent, the arts, uh, they're encouraged to sort of attend any of the growing number of state-funded universities to allow them to better serve the state um, with enhanced knowledge in their field, right? So the, yep. the prevailing idea for this period is actually it's not wrong to spend your time learning. Not everyone gets access to universities, and it's yeah. not like here now where like people think they have to go to college regardless. But if you show mm -hmm. aptitude in a certain field, you get the opportunity to go and study, and it's not, yeah. it's not frowned upon to um, better yourself intellectually and to create more opportunities for yourself. Yeah. Um, there's also a growing DIY um, art, and uh, I said art and leisure. Um, yeah. Because, like I said before, you know, uh, hobbies like we consider them now were sort of suppressed a little bit under previous Soviet rules. Um, yeah. People weren't encouraged to like take photographs for photography's sake or paint for painting's sake. Everything was sort of retooled to be done with the idea of furthering some sort of state goal, um, and that's still a part of it. I'm not going to pretend that that has gone away, um, but the rules are a little bit looser, um, particularly when it comes to travel. So. Officially, Soviet citizens are still not allowed to leave the Soviet Union. Um, the idea of whatever the Iron Curtain is still very much a thing. But travel within the Soviet Union is now not only allowed, but sort of encouraged. Um, and people are encouraged to see the different regions, to travel, to experience the different cultures, the music, uh, all the different things that make up the different constituent states of the Soviet Union. And even to a limited degree, they're, they're sort of encouraged to absorb um, cultural exports from outside the Soviet Union. Now, you always yeah. had to be able to point to how it was bettering your uh, ability to um, serve your your state and and the people. Um, you know, so certain things were still kind of frowned upon. Like they didn't love like people just like listening to jazz. But if you were picking up like radio broadcasts from outside and you could show like, well, I'm doing this because this particular broadcast provides valid information that helps me. I don't know, with my study of hydraulics, that was okay. And you could kind of get away with, they weren't doing like big massive crackdowns the same way that they were under Stalin. So like, as long as you had like some sort of an explanation, it was mostly okay. You weren't yeah. going to just get hauled off by, you know, um, the KGB over having a radio. Um, yeah. And that will come up in a little bit. So with that as like our background, um, that's the sort of time period that we're talking about. Um, I want to introduce our, our quote unquote protagonists. So uh, the main people that we're going to be talking about in this story, they are uh, students, gen uh, almost all students at Ural, po Ural Polytechnical Institute or UPI, um, yep. which is a state run institution for student students studying what we would now consider like STEM sciences. Mm -hmm. um, it's located in the city of Sverdlovsk, which is one of Russia's largest uh, cities, and the capital of the Sverdlovsk Oblast administrative region. So mm -hmm. I apologize for my Russian pronunciation. I'm going to do my best, but some of these words are a little tough for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, if yeah. you're looking for Sverdlovsk, it's it's a little confusing. So yeah. the Soviets underwent in the 20s, I say, I want to say in up, up through the 30s, went through a real process of sort of renaming a lot of landmarks and rivers and cities and... Anything that had a name that was sort of derived from 
Tsarist history or mm-hmm. religious history. So like St. Petersburg is a good example. Um, yeah. They were renamed to something that was a little more, not necessarily like communist, but just things that were a little more uh, bland, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So Sverdlovsk city uh, is just named after the region that it's the capital of. It's the capital of Sverdlovsk Oblast, so they name it Sverdlovsk city. Um, but it's the city of Yekaterinburg, which uh, was named after Tsar Peter the Great's wife, Catherine, um, yep. and it is now renamed Yekaterinburg. So um, yeah. a lot of these cities you'll see have, have sort of double yeah. names like this. Leningrad went back to St. Petersburg. Right. Yeah. And Stalingrad was... Well, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, a lot of the grads are gone now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, this is like sort of the policy. So they're they're in Sverdlovsk city or Yekaterinburg. Um, so if you're looking for it on a map, that's where you're yep. looking. Um, the students that we're focusing on, in addition to studying to become engineers or scientists in various capacities, were also members of the city slash university's outdoor club. Um, they were all avid hikers, skiers, and kind of just generally interested in um, the Soviet concept of tourism, um, which it's the same word, but it had a very different meaning. So basically, like, tourism during Soviet Russia just was being someone who liked doing cool shit outside with your friends. Like, yeah. traveling around, seeing the sights, going on adventures, climbing a mountain, riding a bike, skiing down a mountain. And if you yeah. liked to go around and do that all over in different places, that's a tourist. Um, yeah. It didn't have, like, the sort of modern meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the members of this group are rated grade two outdoor specialists. In Soviet okay, Russia, nice. there were um, grades one, two, and three. These are the three official ranks. Um, is one highest or lowest? One is the lowest. Um, okay. So grade three is the highest. If you're a grade three outdoor mm-hmm. expert, um, you are rated to basically undertake any sort of outdoor adventure you could possibly want. And in Soviet Russia, you kind of had to get permission to do these things. They were handing the permission out. Like, they wanted people to do this stuff. But yeah. um, like in any, like, serious bureaucracy, I mean, if you're taking time off of your studies, which are state-funded, and ostensibly to train you to work for the state, and you're going to go and do something risky, um, the state wants to know about it. So you had to get permission. Mm-hmm. Your routes had to be approved. It was all much more. It wasn't like, you know, we think of today. So they're going hiking. They didn't just, like, pick a day and all just go. They had to get it approved. They had to be members of a club. Um, it really was pretty easy, but there were extra steps. Yeah. Um, so they're rated grade two, which means they're allowed to do certain more advanced things. You know, most of us could probably get a grade one pretty easily. Grade two is like a pretty good skier and a mountain climber or whatever. Grade three means that like if you want to go climb Mount Everest, you can do it. You're, yeah. they're, they're pretty much approving you to do whatever you want to do. Um, and also to instruct others to lead lead expeditions, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is especially important to note because a lot of like later analysis of the, the following events sort of hinge yeah. on the party making like really dumb mistakes. Yeah. Um, and to be a grade two outdoors expert, um, I know we, again, we like to like downplay everything about the Soviet Union. They weren't like slouches they were all yeah. really experienced and had lots of cool stories and i'll, I'll mention some of them but yeah. these these were like serious outdoorsy people um yeah. and not so, to mention also you know the soviet union they went from um in like what 40 years 45 years they went from a total backwater peasant uh, nation to winning the space race so they kind of right. had the bureaucracy down yeah like they knew what they were doing with yeah. some things they they there's a lot that was going on that was right 
at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, they're not just handing these out for no reason. And it is too bad because, you know, in a later episode we'll probably talk about it. But, yeah, it kind mm-hmm. of does slide back pretty substantially after this period. But right yeah. now, like the period of time that we're talking about, the USSR is, like, looking pretty good. It's, like, yep. a pretty nice place to live, not for everybody, but for more people than ever in the history of Russia. Um, and, you know, you could make the argument that they were living as well as anywhere else in the world at this point. Um, so it's important to note, like I said, because basically they're, they're good at what they're doing. Um, and actually this, this expedition, um, importantly, they were going on in order to qualify for their grade three certification. So these are people that were not only grade two, but were considered ready to be marked grade three, like the highest tier of experts. And they're going on this particular trip with the understanding that when they get back, if they complete the various list items that they're supposed to complete, which is spending a certain number of time um, sleeping out in the wilderness, being a certain distance from uh, a city, um, yep. being uh, covering a grand total of, I want to say it's like 300 kilometers for the trip, um, all on foot or on skis. If they check all these boxes when they get back, they'll be grade three certified. Yep. Um, ooh, excuse me, that's that strawberry seltzer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Donnie Icar in his book does a really good job of sort of explaining and humanizing the members of the group. So I'm going to kind of like paraphrase and describe the different people we're talking about here the way he does. Yeah. Um, because you don't see that in a lot of other sources. People tend to focus on like the aftermath of what's about to happen. Um, but I think it's really, really nice to sort of look at these, again, like I said at the start, as, as sort of real people who... Um, yeah. We're kind of going on a, what sounds like a really fun trip, and they yeah, were doing I mean, it with people they really liked. Yeah, I was shocked when I learned how young they were. I mean, they were like fucking like eight, yeah. ten years younger than me. Yeah, <laughs> like you yeah. know what I mean. Both of us. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it really added a, a, I guess another layer of tragedy to it. Yeah, like, they man, were, These kids were. They were young, young, and they were they were young at a time where being young in the Soviet Union was really promising. They were college yeah. students. They all had great careers ahead of them theoretically. Um, so uh. The group leader, it's not an official title, but he did sort of put this together, and it was kind of understood that he was calling the shots, was this guy named Igor Dyatlov, which is, you probably recognize the name, um, who was 23 at the time, and he's a radio engineering student. Um, So he's well-known, he's respected by all of his peers, um, not just because he's really good in school, but he's also um, a really well-known outdoorsman in his little area. He's the true embodiment, you know, his sister, uh, who is still alive, um, and was interviewed in, by Billy Eicher, I want to say, in 2012, talks about mm-hmm. how he was sort of the embodiment of the Soviet tourist. Like, this is a guy who, like, just his ultimate thrill in life was going out and just doing stuff. Like, he wanted yep. to go and go whitewater rafting and uh, climb a mountain and ski back down it. And he was a real sort of, like... <sighs> I don't really want to say like man's man, but he was just sort of like a the, the quintessential idea of like an outdoors an outdoors person. Yeah. Um, he's also super skilled. Like so, I said he's he's a radio engineering student, and he got that opportunity because in his personal life he's sort of obsessed with radios. Um, yeah. Shortwave radios are still officially illegal during this period in the Soviet Union, but that law is not strictly enforced. It's kind of a gray area. Um, the reason they're illegal, obviously, is like. You don't want people intercepting propaganda that's being piped in from Western Europe or even just being exposed to what are considered like harmful cultural exports like jazz, things like that. Yeah. Um, Rightist materials. Right. You don't want any of that 
sneaking in. But yeah. uh, <laughs> one way around it, so you can't buy a radio, but you can build a radio. Um, yeah. And generally speaking, if you can prove like he could that you were building them for educational purposes, nobody was really going to hassle you about it. So he's got a collection of like 50 personally made radios um, okay. that not only like shortwave radios where you can talk to other people, but also radios that he can pick up a broadcast on. Yeah. Um, important for our story though. So what I was sort of wondering when I heard this is like, okay, so this is supposed to be some wilderness disaster. We've got a radio expert. Why didn't he just have a radio to call for help? I didn't realize this, but radios back then were like 100 pounds. Fuck that. Yeah, so <laughs> no one questioned for a second why he didn't bring one with him. It would have been like yeah. the dumbest thing in the world, and no outdoors yeah. people ever had a radio with them. Um, not just for legal reasons, but just because lugging one along, it's like a whole person's worth of equipment. Yeah, seriously. Um, so he's a charismatic, intelligent, he's a born leader. Um, he's, he's sort of the glue that holds the party together. Um, and in the book, there's this really cool anecdote from a journal of one of his um, uh, friends who he used yep. to go hiking with about, um, that just sort of describes his leadership style. So uh, on a previous trip, he and his friends were out on the steps around the Ural Mountains and they found themselves, this is in like springtime, they found themselves facing down a stampeding herd of wild horses. Uh, there's nowhere that they can go. They're in the middle of a clearing. There's nothing to hide behind. And so everybody's panicked. They're like, we do not have time to get away from these horses. We're going to get killed. And all of yep. a sudden, everybody hears Igor Dyatlov yell out, like, everybody, like, get together. Don't move. Nobody move. And so he gets everyone huddled together. And they all, like, are hugging each other tight. And when they're, like, 20 feet away, this stampeding herd of horses just splits and runs, like, right around them and their hair is whipping in the wind. And Damn. finally, like, the dust settles and the herd is passed and nobody's got a scratch on them. And everybody's looking at Igor like, how did you know that? And he's like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> it just seemed like the right thing to do. And so there's yeah. all these stories about that. And so at this stage, like, people are, are positive he's going to get his, his level three certification. And he's naturally the person that's sort of in charge. Yeah. Um, and then just going through the list of the other people, there's Zinaida or Zina Kolmogorova who's 22, um, described as lively, intelligent. She's also a radio engineering student. Um, all of her friends really, really love her. She's funny. Yeah. She's great at stories. Um, they describe her as, like, tomboyish. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. still a thing that we say, but whatever. That's how they described her. Um, and yeah. apparently, like, a lot of the guys had secret crushes on her. Um, that's <laughs> going to come up later, too. But it should be noted that, like, at this period in time, and specifically with this group, Everyone says that they were, like, super egalitarian, and I know that seems obvious considering, you know, they were young communists, And but I think they really took that to heart, and the women were not treated any differently than the men in this group. Mm -hmm. um, the other woman in the group is Lyudmila, or Lyuda Dubinina, who's 20. She's the youngest. Um, she's a super enthusiastic communist. Um, they all, they had, like, a running joke where they described her as, like, the, the girl with the gun and the ribbon um, because she was sort of the living embodiment of like, if you ever see those old like Soviet propaganda posters where there's like mm -hmm. young, beautiful communists sort of like proudly upholding the standards of yeah, whatever yeah, they're doing. Sure. She, she was like one of those in real life. <clears throat> um, also known for being like super, super tough. Uh, one time on a previous sh uh, trip, she got accidentally shot in the leg with a hunting rifle, and everyone's mm -hmm. panicking. They have to carry her, like, 50 kilometers over the mountains to get her back to a hospital. And I guess the whole time she's, like, cracking jokes and making sure no one else is afraid while she's, yep. like, pumping blood out of a gunshot wound to her leg. God damn. Um, yeah, she's tough. 
then there's Yuri Yudin, who's the first <laughs> of three Yuris. There's a there's the three procession Yuris of the Yuris. <laughs> there's a procession of Yuris. Um, <laughs> so he's 21. He's a lifelong sufferer of heart problems, rheumatism, which is sort of like arthritis or like a blanket term for joint yeah. swelling and joint pain, um, chronic back and chronic knee pain. Um, so he had gotten really into hiking as a way to like get healthy, um, but because he had such a long medical history, they made him like the group doctor just because he took more medicine than anyone else. So I guess that yeah. meant he knew more about it. As a man who's taken medicine many times, <laughs> I'm very good at prescribing it. I guess. <laughs> um, and then Yuri number two is Yuri Doroshenko, who will just yeah. be referred to as Doroshenko, um, another yeah. radio engineer. Um, he was sort of known for a time when he was out hiking. Uh, a bear attacked him and his group, Fuck. and he grabbed the only thing he had, which was a, a geology hammer, and just like single-handedly scared the bear off just by acting like a crazy man and running at it with this hammer. And before the bear had like time to realize like what was going on, it just freaked out and ran away. And so yeah. Yuri Doroshenko chased off a bear. Yeah. Um, then there's <laughs> Yuri um, or Georgi uh, Krivonishchenko, who will just be called Georgi for the rest of this. Uh, he's 23. He's like the class clown. Um, he's known for always joking around, and he's always got his mandolin on him. Nice. Dad. So he's constantly just, like, making jokes and playing mandolin. Um, but he's also uh, a student of construction and hydraulics and is very smart. Um, then we've got uh, Alexander Kolevatov, 24, a big but patient man studying nuclear phys physics, so also not a dummy. Um, he's most known for having this like really old antique pipe that he was constantly puffing away on. Even nice. when, they, when they would go on hikes, they would make a rule like no smoking while we're away on hikes. And he would always break the rule because he had to smoke his pipe. Um, big and quiet and very private even among his friends. Um, and then there is Rustem or Rustik Slobodin, 23. He's a friendly and unpretentious kid. He also loves playing mandolin. Um, he's sort of like the 50s Soviet version of a rich kid. So obviously, like, they didn't have, like, more money or anything, but his parents were both college professors, um, and he had also already completed his degree. Um, so he had sort of a more privileged background just by virtue of his parents being professors at a time when that was sort of at a premium. Um, yep. And apparently you would never know because he was super nice and unpretentious. Um, and then the last is Nikolai or Kolya Thibault Brignols. Uh, that's French, and I'm not good at pronouncing it. Um, 23, and as expected, the grandson of French immigrants. Um, also had already earned his degree in industrial civil construction. Um, a very serious guy who had apparently read a lot of books, but was also really funny when you least expected it. Um, so these are the nine people that originally set out from the campus to go on the trip. Um, yep. The reason that I wanted to go through all that is just to kind of hammer home the point that, like, A, none of them are stupid, and B, none yep. of them are unprepared or experienced. We've got, like, a guy who fought a bear, um, you know, yep. a bunch of, like, nuclear physicists and radio engineers. These are all smart, really capable kids who went out to yep. do a thing that no one expected would give them any trouble. Yeah. Um, so the trip is designed to cover, like I said, 300 kilometers of rough rural terrain. They're going to go on this trip to qualify for their grade three. Um, and their plan is to travel north, cross over the Ural mountain range um, in the very far north of Sverdlovsk Oblast, uh, go to Mount Ortoten, which is like at the northernmost reach of the oblast, and mm -hmm. end at the Lazva River, which is sort of like the, the demarker of the territory that they're from. Yeah. Um, this region is known as Western Siberia. It's, it's not actually part of like Siberia proper, but it's sort of like the gateway from 
more temperate, more fertile Western Russia, whereas most of the population <coughs> is, and like Siberia, which is two thirds of Russia and is like a yeah. tundra wilderness filled with wild animals and local native peoples and is very, yeah. very sparsely populated. And they're Some sort of going trappers. to fur trappers. Um, yeah. They're sort of right on the line with that. So they're going to go up into like the real wilderness. Um, they spent months preparing. Their route is entirely logged. Um, everybody at the city committee for physical culture, which is like the governing body of their club, um, is aware yep. of the timing of their trip. Everything's been stamped and signed, and the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. This is not like a secret trip. Or People know where they're going. They know who they are. They're all qualified, whatever. Yeah. Um, so they're surprised when they get their, their book back that they've actually been approved for 10 people. Um, and that they're going to be meeting another person uh, at the train station. And yeah. so um, only one of them knew this guy. Igor Dyatlov knew him. Um, this was Alexander Sasha Zolotaryov, who's the yeah. one old guy. He's 38. Um, he's a combat veteran from World War II. Um, and Igor knows that he's like a, an expert skier and an expert hiking instructor. Um, and okay. he was supposed to go out with another group um, that was approved through the committee. But... At the last minute, like, something changed. He wasn't able to make it in time. And so they said, oh, well, there's another group going up on a really similar hike. Do you want to, you know, lump in with them? And Igor was like, oh, like, I know Sasha. He can come with us. Um, So they meet up with him, right? And the way that they describe the meeting is super funny. He's, like, this big, like, old guy who's, like, grizzled, like, cigarette smoking, like, bearded. He's got all gold teeth. That's awesome. And he's covered in (laughs) tattoos, which is really, really rare in the Soviet Union unless you're – ex-military um and so again like i said he's like a combat veteran from world war ii which i mean the soviet union was a meat grinder in world war ii like to have made it through that war and seen multiple multiple stages of conflict um Mm -hmm. you got being invaded by one of the greatest land armies ever yeah yeah having them go in there and just through sheer will yeah (laughs) just like completely pull off the win yeah um so he's he's got like a kind of checkered tough history but um Apparently awesome. he like he like they're all kind of nervous because he looks kind of scary, and then mm-hmm. it turns out that he's just like fucking awesome. And so again, there's going to be a lot of speculation later that like this weird ex-military guy who nobody knew who like looks like a fucking psycho had something yeah. to do with like what's about to go down. Uh, but it sounds from like all accounts like by the time they were done with their train trip, he was just like their buddy and everybody loved him. Um, so the plan is they're going to take the train from Sverdlovsk north to the city of Evdel, or more like a big town. Um, and then they're going to hop a truck and go up to the frontor village of Vizhai, which is like the last northern city in Sverdlovsk before it's yep. just nothing or Mansi villages. And the Mansi are like the native people of this region. So they're um, an Ugric people. They're related to the Magyars of Hungary. Um mm-hmm. And they're like a traditional steppe culture, so they hunt, they herd reindeer, and they trap fur. And they live in yurts, and they have a really tough, hard life. Um, That Fino-Ugric group. Yes, yeah. Yep, so they're the only people up north. Yes, I play Crusader Kings. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So once they get to to Vijay, that's the last settlement they'll be in, and then they're going to trek on foot the 300-plus back-and-forth kilometers to Mount Otorten, and then that's their trip. Um, And everybody knows this is what they're doing. They have a strict itinerary because this is the Soviet Union. So Mm -hmm. multiple people have been informed, and the calls have been made, and the signatures are on the papers, and they're good to go. Everyone knows they're out there. 
Um, and also, which I found really like endearing, they they keep a group diary, which is like the most communist yep. thing I've ever heard. Like they don't all yeah. have their own diaries; they keep a diary together, and everyone's allowed to do yep. entries. Um, and they sort of frame it like it's a daily newspaper, so they all write like little articles and sign them. And it's like it's just kind of endearing, you know? They have yeah, this, that's uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. And so like, just like a daily log, right? <laughs> and so that's that's how we know a lot of this stuff. Like that, everyone liked Sasha immediately because they write about it, and they let him start writing in the the journal. Like he just sort of fits in, and he becomes like one of the more common uh, contributors to the diary because he just like thinks it's really cool that all these young kids are super into hiking. And you yeah. know, I think for him, this was probably cathartic. You know, he found mm. joy in nature after like a pretty tough early life, and. So they're all just like gelling. Yeah, when he and, was the, when he was like their age, he was yeah, he was fucking in World War Two. He was, he was in fucking World War Two <laughs> yeah. on the Eastern Front, like having yeah. a bad time. And yeah. so now he's just like on a romp with a bunch of idealistic young people who never lived through that, and who or who yeah. did, but they were very small, and who um, they're just out to have a good time. So this is not like some doomed expedition. This is not like some like dark, dreary thing. Like there's all these tales of them being on the train and like singing songs and they all have mandolins. And at this point in time, uh, it's considered the, the, the period of bard music in the Soviet Union, which is like their analog to folk music. Yeah. And so because they didn't have access to a lot of outside music and because officially recorded music was usually like government funded and just about the government, um, there was this really strong like DIY music scene. So everybody was writing their own music and they would come up with ways to record it. And records uh, were really tough to find because after World War II, vinyl was like extremely expensive and rationed. So they, you know, like most things in this era, it's the Soviet Union was super punk rock. They came up with their own way to make records. They would buy x-ray glass. Yeah, bone music. Yeah, yeah, they would buy <laughs> x-ray, sheets of x-ray glass from, like, medical yeah. students, and that, I guess, you could have cut just like vinyl, and it would sound like a record. So they would, like, record themselves on homemade records, and um, yeah. they had all these songs and stuff, and y if you got caught with, like, a collection of these, you could still get in really big trouble, even during, like, the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah. You weren't supposed to have, like, recordings of non-state-sanctioned music, so... These guys are all singing like songs they're writing and stuff, having a really good time. They stop at uh, uh, an elementary school in Evedale, I believe, um, mm -hmm. and the schoolmaster like lets them spend the night there in exchange for giving a presentation to the class the next day. And yeah. so all the kids at the end of it like love them and end up like making them promise to take them on adventures. And so it's kind of just like a really idyllic group of like happy young people going out to do like a happy fun thing. Um, yeah. And so that's the message that I want you all to take away from this stage of the journey. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of hijinks and singing and whatever. So uh, by January 27th, they've started their expedition. They've restocked in Vijay, um, and they're set out on their, their on-foot trip. So this is like the fun times are over. I mean, they're still having fun. They're still writing. They're taking a lot of pictures. Um, and you can find a lot of these pictures. Spoiler alert. The pictures are available online that they took on their trip. Um, you can yeah. also see sections of their journal because a lot of this stuff we have. Um, and so they've set out for Otorten Mountain. 
Um, so January 28th, after one day of trekking, Yuri Yudin, who's the guy that I mentioned who had, like, physical problems his whole life, um, yeah. he's just been having, like, a really rough time. He's having a flare-up of rheumatism. His knees are basically not functioning. His back is stiff. And he's starting to have chest pains. And he's like, you know what, guys? I don't want to hold you all up because everyone's really worried about him. They're all offering to, like, help carry his stuff. And he's like, no, like, if I never get my grade three, it's not the end of the world. I'm going to yep. turn back. My par- I grew up not that far from here. I can walk the day back to Vijay, and then I'll see if someone can give me a ride to my home village, and I'll just, like, hang with my family. And you guys have fun, and I will see you when I get back. Yep. Um, and, again, we know about this because they wrote about it, you know. Sad to see Yuri go, but he wasn't feeling good, and it was cool of him to not make us stop the trip. Yep. Um, so he heads off to go with his family. Uh, By January 31st, the group's records show that they've reached the point where they plan to cross the Ural Mountains. So this is entering into, like, the sort of final phase of the trip. They're crossing a pass between two mountains. um, And then after that, it's like a straight shot north before they end up at Otorten um, and the river. So they end up camping at the base of Holatchal Mountain, um, which means Death Mountain in the Mansi language. And they set up camp there, and the next day they're going to kind of pass over the side of this mountain, um, hit the other side, and then they're going to head north. Um, So Holat Chal, or Kolat Siachl, something like that in Russian, um, (laughs) it doesn't actually mean like – well, so it does actually mean Death Mountain or Dead Mountain. Yeah. um, But that's kind of misleading. So Holat Chal is a Mansi word. um, And like I said before, the Mansi are the sort of native people of this area – and they had a lot of place names and sort of landmark names that had dead yeah. or death in the name. And for them, all that meant was that there was no game there. It, was, it yeah. could also be like barren or um, spare. Um, yeah. And the reason that they would call things that is just to sort of let other hunters know, like, hey, you know what? Like, don't waste your time because you're going to do a lot of walking and you're not going to catch much. You ain't going to get shit. Yeah. Like, that was really all it meant. So it's not some, like, ghoulish, ominous thing where it's like the yeah. secret mountain of the dead. Like, there's no legends about it. There's no, like tribal tales of ghosts on the mountain it's just there's no no game up there don't fucking bother and you know these Mm. are real like people of the steppe they don't go on like pleasure hikes up the mountain the same way as 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 these young kids do like for them it's like why the fuck would i climb up there it's in the name dead mountain there's nothing up there it sucks up there go over to uh lots of rabbits mountain that's a fucking great mountain it looks the same and you know what there's lots of rabbits over there Um, So they're camping at the base of Dead Mountain where there are no rabbits. Um, And so it seems like what their plan was to do was to cross the Urals in one day, um, which is theoretically possible. Um, But what we think happened is that a snowstorm um, sort of made them lose track of where they were. And one thing that kept coming up when I was reading about this is that uh, Holatchal is not like some super tall super ominous looking mountain it's actually like it's got a very shallow slope takes a Mm -hmm. long time to get from the bottom to the top um it's not gigantic it's a mountain but it's not like a huge mountain and if you're standing on it depending on the weather it can be kind of confusing to tell when you're going uphill or downhill in certain parts just because it's not a super steep slope um and so they end up rather than climbing across it like they intended to do they accidentally end up sort of veering towards the summit and so by the time night falls they realize that rather than cross over the mountain they've kind of climbed up the mountain and they're like oh well shit so they make camp at the top um 
and they are on a slope, so they have to carve out like some snow to make a flat area, and they end up staying up there. Um, and again, it's kind of hypothesized that the reason they probably did this rather than like hike overnight was because they weren't particularly worried about it, and they were thinking mm -hmm. like, well, like we're out here to learn, so why not practice our mountainside camping skills? Like, we'll set yeah. up the camp here, whatever. We'll make dinner, and it's just going to be fine. Um, yep. They're all experts. They're all or about to be experts officially. Um, and they're not going to just, like, make some dumb decision and camp in some treacherous place if they don't think it's, like, fine. So they, yeah. they make camp there because why wouldn't they? Um, and this Sounds is where... Like somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, fuck it. Like, why not? This is a good opportunity for us to, like, practice, and so we'll just practice. Yep. Um, and so this is where their records end and where the mystery begins. Um, so... Uh, Dyatlov back home had promised to send a telegram to the hiking club by or um, by or on February 12th. So whenever they returned back to the, the town of Vijay, he was going to send a telegram back and say, "We made it. We're on our way home." Yep. When this doesn't happen, um, nobody panics immediately because I mean, this is pre-cell phones and all this stuff, and they're up in literal Siberia. Delays are common, so they're like, "Oh, whatever. A, a delay of three extra days is nothing to worry about." After that, we'll yeah. start to think. So the three days go, go by, and then I think another day goes by. The families are starting to get a little anxious. And then what happens? But all of a sudden, Yuri Yudin, who is the guy who decided not to go at the last minute, comes waltzing back into campus, and he's by himself. And he's, like, got no idea why everyone's so freaked out. And everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> where's, like where's your friends? And he goes, what? Oh, fuck. And he realizes, like, you know, uh, when we finally reached Vijay, you know, there was a delay. And... Uh, Igor told me that I was supposed to, to telegraph you guys and let you know that they were running a couple days behind schedule. Um, and I was like so out of it because I was hurting so much. I totally forgot until I was at my parents' village and they didn't have a telegraph. So I don't know. I just figured I'd get back at the same time as them. Yeah. And if not, I would just let you know. And he's like, so, you know, don't worry. They said they're three days behind. So, you know, right now you think it's three days late, but it's actually right on schedule. And so uh -huh. give it another couple days, whatever. He goes back to, to school, and but the parents are still kind of worried. Yeah. And finally, um, on February 20th, they, they have decided, like, look, okay, so it's been almost two weeks since they were supposed to get back. No one's heard anything. Um, they wired out to Vijay, and Vijay said they never came back. So yeah. they decide they're going to put together a search party. Um and so they, they end up getting support, not just from, like, other hiking club members, like amateurs, but who are skilled, but also from the military and the military police. Um, and so they, they round up a couple of choppers. They get a bunch of search dogs um, and a bunch of, like, experienced hikers. And they also, the, the Mansi offer to help just because yeah. they know the area. And they're like, yeah, like, we can go... Yeah, we, we usually don't go that mountain. Yeah. I don't know why these it's kids called went. Death Mountain. There's literally nothing there. That's why we named it that. But yeah, just because it sucks. We can go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've been there oh, once no, or twice. Oh, no. They hiked up Death Mountain? Yeah, they shouldn't have done that. There's nothing up there. Yeah. They're probably <laughs> yeah, hungry. Like a super They're boring mountain. They're probably fucking hungry. Honestly, like, yeah, there's not even rabbits up there. So yeah. they, get, they go and they help them look up Death Mountain. Um, and they're looking for a while. And then on the 26th, their mountainside camp is found on the side of Kolat. Mm -hmm. um, and so the searchers, when they find the camp, are totally baffled. So the camp is mostly pristine. Um, yeah. The first thing they noticed, though, so everybody was staying in, like, a big community tent. Um, yes. And some of them would sleep outside on clear nights, like on <laughs> sleeping bags and stuff, but they would keep all their stuff in the tent. And yep. so the tent is 
torn apart. And it looks like it's been ripped from the inside because the canvas is like pushed out and off yeah. to the sides. And it's sort of half collapsed and like there's some snow on it. And But other than that, the camp is like pristine. There's still food out like they were getting ready to cook. Um, most of their warm clothes are still there. And like weirdly enough, the thing that they all notice is that their uh, boots and their shoes are all still there. So they're like, what the fuck? But the only thing that's missing is all the kids. Like everyone's gone. Yeah. Um, and so they have no idea where everyone is, but they see this camp, which is like mostly preserved. And if everyone's gone, like why don't they have their shoes on? No one's yeah. here. So the um, the next thing that they notice, there's like their flashlights are all still there, but they're all turned on. So someone was using them when they got left behind. Um, and they have a camera there that's propped up and it's like away facing the horizon. Like they were watching yeah. something or taking a photo of something on the horizon. Um, but it's been like kind of bad weather lately. So they're like, well, it wasn't like the sunset. Anyway, they're just kind of noticing these things. And then somebody calls out like, hey, like there's footprints over here. And they find what looks like nine sets of tracks all leading off together in one direction um, mm -hmm. down the slope towards there's like a little forest at the bottom of the slope. Yep. And so they're like, okay, um, they follow the tracks, and the tracks eventually, after like like 500 meters, the tracks disappear, and they're covered in snow, and they can't follow them anymore. And they're like, well, it looks like they were headed down towards the forest. Let's go down to the forest, and let's check it out. Yep. And so they get to the tree line, and they're sort of walking along the tree line, and they come to a large pine tree. And at the base of the large pine tree, they see the remains of a campfire. Um, and they know that this isn't like a local Mansi campfire because the Mansi don't camp out in the open. They don't mess with Death Mountain because it's boring. They like they, to yeah, stay. Yeah, they go the, to Rabbit's Mountain. Yeah, but they also like if they're gonna camp, they camp in the trees because there's less wind in the trees. If there's yeah. you know a storm, they're more protected in the trees. There's more likely to be food in the trees. So you'll never find like a Mansi camp out in the open like this. Um, and so they assume it must be the kids from up the mountain. Yeah. So. They uh, shortly thereafter they find the bodies of Georgi and Yuri Doroshenko, partially buried and also partially naked. They both have no pants on. They have no jackets. One of them is down to just his underwear. One's in his long johns. They have no shoes, um, and they're both frozen to death. Yep. Um, some reports indicate that there was like damage to one of their faces, like likely from a bird or something. But that I don't know if that's like a hundred percent on these two. Um, an eyeball or something. Yeah. Um, the tree that they built the fire under uh, shows evidence yeah. that someone had been climbing it up to, like, five meters up. There's bark and branches stripped away. And when they look closer, it looks like there's little bits of, like, blood and skin. So, like, someone was scrambling up the tree. Yeah. Um, and so they're thinking that they were trying to either find the camp or, who knows, trying to get away from something. But somebody was trying to climb the tree, and then here they are, and they're yeah. both dead. Uh, so they backtrack from this scene towards the camp, and they eventually find three more bodies. They find Igor Dyatlov, um, they find Komogorova, and they find Slobodin. Um, and they're all, like, apart from each other by, like, several hundred meters, staggered on their way back, and they're all facing the camp. And the way yeah. their position makes it look like they either collapsed or were crawling, like, towards the camp, trying to get back to the yeah. camp. Um so it's very strange, um, and also all three of these are found to have frozen to death. So they, they take these three, I'm sorry, these um, five, and they send them back for examination, and they're looking for them. And meanwhile, they're like, well, we got to try to find the rest of them. So the rest yeah. of the search takes a couple of months um, because there's still tons of snow in February. And so finally, um, they, get to, they get to May. 
um, and they find the rest of them once the snow has started to thaw. They're they're actually back. They're further into the woods um, yep. than the two that were found under the tree. And they find the remaining three in a stream of water at the bottom of a small ravine. Um, their heads and stuff are just like hanging out in this tree as like in this uh, river as the snow begins to melt. Um, yep. So these three are slightly better dressed. They're wearing like warmer clothes. Um, and it actually looks like they had, they, some of them were wearing the other kids' clothes. So like mm-hmm. when someone died, they had like taken their clothes to stay warm. Some of the clothes are like shredded or like partially burned, which is kind of strange. Um, mm-hmm. And so then initial examinations for all of these people are that they died of hypothermia, but they eventually send everybody back. Um, and the first, the first five that they found prior to the thaw, uh, yeah. it is concluded that they, that they died of hypothermia. Um, they had some minor cuts and bruises, but nothing major, nothing fatal. Um, but for these new three that they just found, uh, there's new questions. So uh, Thibault Brignols, he had a fatal major crush wound to his skull. His skull was yep. just shattered. And then Dubinina and Zolotaryov had massive and fatal uh, chest cavity fractures. Um, mm-hmm. And so the medical examiner saw them and was like, you usually only see this in like car crashes. Like this is super extensive. But what really freaked him out is that they didn't have any external injuries like you would have in something like that. So like mm-hmm. there was no external trauma, nothing hit them. Their skin wasn't abraded. It almost looked like they had gone like very deep underwater and the pressure had crushed their bones. Yeah. Um, which is what he said. Yeah. In addition to this, several of these three are disfigured. So Dubinina was missing her tongue, her eyes, most of her lips, and a big chunk of her skull. Um, yeah. Zolotaryov was also missing his <clears throat> eyes. And then Alexander Kolevatov had no eyebrows. Um, the skin of his eyebrows had just sort of been ripped away. Um, and in addition, at least one, possibly two of the members' clothing was like heavily irradiated, which was super weird because the mm-hmm. bodies didn't show major signs of radiation. Um, and none of the others were irradiated. And so that was always just sort of like a little red herring for them. Yeah. Um, there was no obvious evidence of an avalanche, an animal attack. Um, it was clear that they had left the camp together and at their own volition. Um, but they had left all their stuff, so they obviously left in a hurry. And so this yeah. just basically left everyone thinking, like, well, what the fuck happened? And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, the, the mystery of Dialov Pass. Um, and then I'm just going to really quickly go through, like, some of the theories and then talk about, like, the newest sort of prevailing theory as to what happened. Yeah. Um, so officially, the investigation ends super quickly after these other three are discovered. It ends in the same month in May. And... Uh, they rule that it was a, quote, unknown, compelling natural force uh, that they could not withstand that caused them to die. Um, which is Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically a non-answer. Yeah, he's basically saying, like, something that was really uh, strong and we don't know what it was, and they're dead. So that's that. Um,
Pretty much, yeah. So there's no more official explanation, um, but they've determined that it doesn't look like there was any sort of like guilty party. There's no one they could blame for their death. Uh, there was no wrongdoing. Everyone was sort of cleared of that. I mean, Yuri Yudin, it became pretty obvious once they found the group's journals and they got in touch with Vijay and with his home village that he really did what he said he did. He walked back the day after to Vijay. Um, yeah. There's no real way he could have been involved. Um, the Mansi for a while, people were saying, like, what if the Monsi attacked them? And then people were like, what are you fucking talking about? That's literally never happened. Like, the Monsi <laughs> are super chill, peaceful people. They live up in the woods. Why would they come out and just, like, randomly kill a bunch of hikers? They don't have, like, some weird, I don't know, religion. They're not, and they're, like, basically just, like, that's just racist. Like, don't. Yeah. They, they <laughs> definitely didn't do it. They helped us look they for just, them. Like, I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's never been an incidence of that ever occurring, so... We're going to just move on from that. Yeah, they just hang out and do their own thing. <laughs> they just do their own thing. They don't even like yeah. that mountain. That's boring-ass yeah. dead they, mountain. It's, like, it's not Rabbit's Mountain. No, they don't go there. Like, why would yeah. they, you know? There's no Rabbit's Mountain. No rabbits, no deer. We and don't go there. We have to reiterate, it's not called Dead Mountain because there's some cool-ass ghost legend or some shit. It's just because yeah. it's a sucky mountain. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's get, that gets dropped pretty pretty quickly. Um, and so now I'm just going to get into some of the details around this that have come to light since uh, over time. Because basically yeah. at the time in 1959, that's it. That's the whole report. Nobody gets any other details. Nothing else gets reported. The military police and the government basically just say, okay, yep, case closed. Everybody shut the fuck up about it. And then they put that case into a secret vault because they like to do that. And they put it in a secret vault and that's it. Um, but so of note, you know, over the, the, the successive years, multiple parties in this region, um, including another hiking party that was like 50 kilometers away, they report having seen strange orange lights in the sky uh, in the region where the Dyatlov company was, was hiking. Um, yep. And all throughout that month, from February to March of 59, these lights are seen repeatedly by different people. And it's not just like yokels out in the middle of nowhere saying like, look, there's UFOs. But the military made note of it, um, and the State Meteorological Service both made note of it. And yep. for whatever reason, they were not allowed to share this information. Uh, then in 1990, uh, Lev Ivanov, who is the lead investigator on the case, who declared that it was like a compelling natural force, whatever, uh, he mm -hmm. writes like a magazine article um, and he, he admits that he had absolutely no idea at the time or since how to explain the case, but that during his investigation, he and his team had also seen glowing orange lights in the sky, like off yeah. in the distance. Um, and they were told by their superiors to omit that from their report. That was not to be included in the report. Yeah. Um, then in 1997, it was discovered that he had kept the group's camera and all of their negatives had been recovered and saved. Yep. And so that's how we have all these pictures. We you can you can go online. They're all public domain. There's some really great slideshows and explanations of them. And you can just Google Dyatlov Pass incident on YouTube, and you can find a lot of these in like super HD. Um, and yep. it, it it lends a lot of humanity to it. It's definitely worth looking at. If we had a website, I would have put them on there, um, but they're readily available. Um, but so the final exposure has been like a thing that conspiracy theorists have really latched onto because basically it just yeah. shows like a black grainy background with what looks like a big flash of light in the center. And yeah. the reason people have like latched onto that is because, like I said, they found the camera supposedly at camp pointing off towards the night sky or towards the sky. Yeah. And so there's conjecture that they had noticed these red flashes in the sky and were trying to and photograph them. Pictures. Yeah. 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 And so that's what that could be. But these are all black and white photos. There's no real way to tell what it is. It could have just been anything, really. But that's the, the thought, is that that's what it might be. Um, 
So a local boy in uh, Sverdlovsk named Yuri Kunsevich, uh, yeah. he attended five of the nine funerals for the party members, and he reported at the time and later <clears throat> that they had, like, weirdly dark tan skin and that their yeah. hair had, like, a bluish color to it, um, which, I don't know, maybe that could be radiation or who knows. Uh, um, right, yeah, I, I don't know. He went on to chair it, the... Um, it might be that... Um, they had, like, frostbite. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe. Um, could have been that. He yeah. would go on to chair the... Or that they had been, like, preserved with iodine for their funerals or something like that. Yeah. Like, because they were so disfigured. So it could yep. have been, it could have been like, nothing. Um, yeah. But he went on to chair the Dyatlov Foundation, um, which is, like, the main foundation inside Russia that still sort of preserves the memory of this incident. And he's, yeah. like, a main sort of supporting character in the present-day part of um, Icar's book that I read. Um, so he was still kicking around, at least in 2013. And uh, also, Icar talks to Yuri Yudin, who passed away, like, during the writing of the book, but he was alive mm -hmm. in 2013 and um, was still clearly really fucked up about this because the whole thing got so sensationalized. And he was like, my friends died out in the woods. Like, yeah, I get it. Like, maybe it was the Yeti or whatever, but um, it wasn't, so... Those are, like, all of my friends. That's, like, every <laughs> friend I had, and they're all dead. Yeah. Um, so he was, like, clearly very... Um, very, very messed up over this whole thing. Yeah. Um, they're all memorialized still. You can visit their graves. Um, and since then, like, accusations of military involvement have also become really popular. Um, mm -hmm. So people point to the glowing orbs and the super quick conclusion of the investigation, and they sort of fill in the blanks there, and they're like, well, something was going on, and, like, why did the government shut it down so quick? Um, mm -hmm. But so these are, like, the prevailing theories. So there's the avalanche theory. Yep. Which, at the time, they kind of quickly discounted because the camp was still there. Like, nothing was buried under snow. They found several of the bodies super quickly. It didn't look like there was an avalanche. Um, yeah. And at the time, they thought that the slope was too shallow to permit um, an avalanche. And also, since this uh, event, over 100 camping parties, either part of the search or after the search, had gone up and camped in similar conditions, and none of them reported any conditions that could possibly have led to an avalanche. So for a while, that was, like, considered, like, not even worth thinking about. Um, yeah. Also, like, another thing, like, not, and, and this, I think, is legitimate, but um, both Dyatlov and uh, Sasha Zolotaryov are master skiers, and so most people that are that good and spend that much time in the mountain, like, would never agree to camp somewhere where there was even a risk of that. They would have said, let's just trek back down the mountain at night. It's better than staying up here. Yeah. Um, and they didn't do that. So um, there's really little evidence, but... Um, this is sort of the new prevailing theory. Um, it's yeah. possible, even though this sounds crazy, that a small, like, localized slab of snow could have broken loose and fallen directly on the tent. They've discovered that even though the snow lands on the side of the mountain and can create a certain illusion that it's pretty a pretty mild slope, there are parts where the slope is, like, just steep enough where an avalanche is theoretically possible. Mm -hmm. And they've done uh, experiments... Uh, where they've sort of modeled this. Um, the Russian government reopened their investigation in 2015, and they found that this was the case. And then again, this year in 2021, they used uh, digital models based on the snow effects from the movie Frozen. Uh, yeah. They got the assets to that, because like, I guess some guy who studies this stuff saw the movie and was like, you know, not the world's best movie, but the snow effects are like very good. And so mm -hmm. he asked for permission to use the modeling for them and used it to recreate 
many events, but this one in particular. And they found that um, snow under the right conditions could could avalanche on this particular mountain. And what yep. they think happened is that like a, a particularly heavy slab of sort of semi-frozen snow broke off, slammed directly into the tent and kind of nowhere else. And yeah. again, even that, like it wouldn't have been fatal except that they found all of their bedrolls had been arranged on top of their skis to give them support on the side of the mountain. Yeah. And so normally you would have either just been like hurt or bruised or maybe buried under the snow, but because their skis were behind them, it created a rigid backing for them. So instead of bending, their bodies just absorbed the full weight of the impact. And that mm -hmm. would account for some of the like shattering, crushing blows, but without the external harm. Um, and it's not a 100% thing, but that is now in 2021, the prevailing theory that it doesn't yeah. explain everything. Like, we'll probably never know, like, why they ran down to the woods, what happened to some of them that ran back, like, why this, why that, why the radiation? Like, that's still not explained, but yeah, the initial trauma and the reason that they fled camp is thought to be that. Mm -hmm. um, that some of them dragged their friends away to try to save them and then went back to camp for food, but they were all cold, and they just slowly succumbed to their injuries and to... Yeah. Um, and to death yeah yeah so the so the ones with the trauma deep in the woods were probably like brought there by the friends well so actually yeah so they were either brought there by their friends or there's also like a theory which will come up in a minute but that basically yeah. they stumbled into the woods and fell into that ravine and like that's how they got their injuries oh, okay so yeah. that's also a possibility um so yeah. another one that's kind of interesting is that it could have been a catabatic wind um mm -hmm. which is uh, I kind of found this a little hard to dis to understand, but basically from what I gather, it's just a specific type of theoretically possible wind yeah. pattern where cold air coming off the top of a mountain gathers a weird amount of momentum in a very localized place and then basically whips down the side of the mountain like a sledgehammer and yeah. slams into whatever is right at the bottom. So this catabatic wind could have formed and slammed yeah. down just specifically into their tent and like <laughs> crushed the fuck out of just them and left everything that else intact. so bad. Yeah, oh my God. And, and so this is possible, but again, yeah. it's super rare and they, they haven't like been able to show that it happens at at this particular mountain at Holatchal. Um, so this is sort of not like super supported, but it's theoretically possible. Um, yeah. In Iker's book, he's the guy who sort of popularized the infrasound theory, which is that in this particular area, and this is also theoretically possible, uh, the yeah. wind blowing off the surroundings creates a certain uh, ultrasonic frequency that when it interacts with the human inner ear, like causes panic and frustration and sometimes aggression uh, in yeah. people. And so we know these sounds exist, they can be created artificially, but his idea was that this happened. So everybody all of a sudden like panics and they don't know why and they're like, something's wrong. Are you hearing that? What's wrong? What's wrong? And they run away because they think something's going on. They all just book it out of camp. They get you know down the mountain and they realize like they snap out of it and they're like, fuck, we left all our stuff up there. And so they leave a couple of them down there, and then three of them are like, well, we'll trek back and we'll try to make it. But at this point, they're tired, they're freezing, and they all collapse. So they leave two people at the edge of the woods as lookouts. So they're climbing yeah. up the tree to try to see their friends. And the other three rush into the woods to try to get warm, and they slip and fall into the ravine and crack their yeah. skulls. Um, so that's another possible explanation. And yep. then the last one uh, that's that's possible of like the crazy <laughs> ones is yeah. is military munitions testing. Um, so one of the prevailing theories is that parachute bomb tests were going on, um, which is basically where bombs were attached to parachutes um, and they're dropped from planes and they intentionally detonate like above ground level, and so they don't leave like 
external damage to the area. Um, but what they'll do is they'll create like a massive shockwave. And so people that are caught in the blast will suffer yeah. these kind of like internal injuries without external signs of it. Um, and their internal organs and shit will just be crushed and they'll be, you know, whatever, they'll, they'll die. Um, yeah. Or that it was like a similar nuclear test where they were detonating nuclear bombs above either prematurely or on either accidentally prematurely or intentionally prematurely above ground. Um, well, you always detonate them above ground. Oh, that's right. They never hit the ground, do they? Yeah, yeah, you detonate them above for maximum damage. Yeah. yeah. That's probably less likely. So that's just to explain away the radiation, but, like, there would have been more evidence of radiation elsewhere than just, like, the couple people's yeah. clothes. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess what it could have been, maybe, like, far away they were doing some kind of nuclear. Sure. And some of them just hit specific particles. Yeah. And they were just stuck on those particles, and this dude's yeah. clothing just got those only particles. And that, and that is, again, theoretically possible, and it's possible enough that this is, like, considered one of the, the, the plausible explanations. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of supported, you know, people then piggyback off this and say, like, so the military then came in to inspect, like, the results of their test, found all these kids just, like, accidentally murdered on the side of the mountain. And yeah. so they were like, well, fuck. And they, they arranged them to look like something crazy happened. They set their camp up for them and then right. just, like, arranged the bodies. And there is a little bit of physical evidence to support this. Uh, some of the bodies, the way, like, rigor mortis works, you can kind of tell if a muscle has been jerked into a certain position after rigor mortis yeah. has set in, um, which is called, like, levor mortis or something. And yeah. so there was evidence that some of these bodies were moved after injury or after death. Um, and also, the way the tent was set up, some reports claim that the tent was, like, totally set up improperly, which, again, would be really weird for, like, grade two hiking experts um, yeah. to not know how to set up a tent. So, um, but that's, you know, kind of hearsay and who's who, who really knows. Yeah, um, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> outside of that, um, there's the Yeti. Uh, there's yeah. U.S. spy plans <laughs> because yeah, why not blame it on us? Uh, dropping photo flash bombs. Um we did drop photo flash bombs over the Ural Mountains. Like, we actually did sneak in and do that shit. Yeah. But um, not, like, right there and right at that time. But who knows? Um, same with the, the Russian yeah, military. Yeah, we always flying shit over the Soviet Union. Of course. And same with the Russian military. They were doing parachute bomb tests up in that region. And that's actually potentially more likely, like, because they, they did have one or two scheduled in that basic region. Yeah. And so it's possible that they were, like, off target and that this happened which would yeah. explain why they shut down the investigation like immediately like oh well no harm no foul it's a mystery they're all heroes let's make a statue um <laughs> but so yeah basically like the targeted avalanche or slab avalanche theory is most likely um but the important takeaway is that this is not like a story about like a bunch of dummies who went out and did something stupid yeah. and got themselves killed there's no probably like ghost there might be some foul play it's definitely an interesting mystery but you know, these were well-equipped, really intelligent people that were doing something they were totally prepared to do, and they got caught up in something that they had no control over and, uh, you know, found themselves, unfortunately, perishing. probably never know the why or the how and it's it's fun to think that it's it might have been yeti. Uh, yeah yeti. i mean honestly like it's fun to think that it's that but it's probably not that but what it's if it is yeti. that it might be the yeti or 
what it could be is that there's a time loop set up oh. in some sort of secret facility. Ugh. And that it was actually oh. that ghosts are the demon mutated forms of the people themselves who like went back in time and then killed and then killed themselves. Yeah. Which is so the- anyway, <laughs> we watched this really fucking bad movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made Evan watch a movie about this called what was it called Devil's Devil's Pass? Yeah, the Devil's Pass. The Devil's yeah. Pass. Yeah, I definitely uh, after I definitely did a one d one d ten sanity roll. Took yeah, some, took oh, some absolutely. serious sanity damage. From yeah, it. it it was really really rough. Um, yeah, so this yeah. is a movie that also came out in twenty thirteen, and I yeah. think was definitely like riding high on on Iker's book, and it's sort of like tough to explain. I think you should definitely all watch it. Um, I guess I, mean, I wouldn't. Was, rec- I, I watched the whole thing. I didn't yeah. have to pause it. Like you know. Yeah, I sat through <laughs> the entire movie. I watched it with my girlfriend, and the whole time she was like, "What the like? What the fuck is this?" Because yeah. I like told her the basic story because I I find this whole Dyatlov Pass thing really interesting. Yeah. Um, and she was like, "This doesn't sound anything like." She was like, "There were way cooler possibilities that really could have happened that would have been scarier than this." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah I I don't know what to tell you, but I'm glad we watched it. It was um, yeah." Yeah, so the movie itself is about um, some American college students who decide to recreate the journey at the same time of year, and it's right. like a found footage movie. And they kind of, there's less of them, but they kind of fit yeah. the some of the archetypes. So there's like the yeah. the rich kid who's like not snobby, you know? Yeah. Um, there's who is like played the jokester. by like a guy who like looks like he's like 35 or 40. Yeah. And he's supposed to be a college student. He's got like student. just a chin beard and like a knit cap. And, and he like wrinkles all over his face. Yeah. And he's supposed to be a college student. He's supposed to be a college Dude, so I actually wrote down some like random notes on yeah, this. And too. it's long enough ago that I don't really remember. But I remember there's a scene where they're like all on a truck like heading yes. out. Oh, God. Are you going to say the same yeah. thing as me? Yeah. And he's 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 they're like talking about how shitty it is that they're riding on this truck and they have to ride like fifty miles in the yes, cold. The and one guy reaches down. over and grabs a potato and takes a bite of it and says like, "At least we, at have, least enough we have enough potato to chunk donkey." To chunk donkey. <laughs> and I was like, "Fuck yeah, dude! This is a comedy." <laughs> That's so funny. That's the first thing I wrote. Too. Oh, yeah, same. <laughs> Yeah. Man. And so the, um, the rich kid is named J.P. Hauser, and I just wrote chin beard, knit cap, laid back, rich kid rocks. Yeah. Um, also, one of the students claims to have never seen Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. Bananas. Yeah, don't believe that How shit. How are you, like, um, a, a, a PhD student doing your dissertation on, like, obscure Russian yeah, history and yeah, you've never fucking seen Scooby-Doo? Thelma. Yeah, somebody's like, yeah, you're like our Thelma. And she's like, fuck does that mean, Velma. basically. He's like, you know, Thelma, like, Scooby-Doo. And she Velma. goes, oh, you mean the dog? Oh, Velma, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he goes, what, like, the dog? And Or she says that, and he's like, no, what? Whatever. <laughs> and then, uh, let's see. At one point, someone is called Slap Nuts. I just oh, yes. Down. He's like, yeah, like, Slap and that's, So that's the same scene that I'm about to talk about where, like, the female lead and, like, J.P. Hauser, our, like, hippie mountaineer man, are, like, kind yeah. of awkwardly flirting. And she's like, so how do you stay, like, warm up here? And he goes, well, I'd like to introduce you to my young friend, Colonel Whiskey. And pulls a flask out. And I just thought the idea of calling your flask, of flask like, my young friend, Colonel Whiskey. Yeah. Um, and then, like, right after that, their other buddy is, like, like, sleeping with this other girl and, like, secretly trying to film her. And then yeah, she dies, like... like right during that yeah. moment she just gets like fucking killed yeah. um and then Let's, they they it was PG13 i want to say 
So yeah. there was like all these parts where like it sounded like they edited out the F word, and so there's all these like random like freaking like it's not a freaking Yeti because Yetis don't freaking exist. Uh, also, uh, it did one of my favorite things um, that people do in their works of fiction where they reference way better works with similar themes in sure. their own works. Like, like this is a movie about people becoming unstuck in time, and it sucks yeah. ass. And it continuously mentions a pretty good book about becoming unstuck in time, yeah. Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's they, like, they're just like, like some guy's reading Slaughterhouse-Five. And then later on, as but it's like the it's like the Amazon trade paperback edition yeah. of it. Like this is his treasured copy, but you know, like off camera, they just like wrinkled it up to make it look like yeah. it was like his old copy. But like, did like, and also like at the end of the movie, they had this part where like where they're talking about what happens when they walk into the weird wormhole thing. Yeah, and it's like as if uh, you're too stupid as a reader at this point to put two and two together that they're about to like go back in time. They have to bring back up the fact that in Slaughter that somebody was reading Slaughterhouse Five, right? Like just to like try to hammer it. Like it's the same theme. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's just yeah, like, and oh they're, my they're God. standing before the portal, and that last scene was yeah. nuts. So like, and this movie tries to be like every kind of movie. Like it's yeah. like tries to be funny. It tries to be like a found footage film. But then yeah. like at the very end, like in the last act, they introduce these like kind of cool like. The monsters would have been kind of cool as, like, an enemy in a video game. Like, they can teleport. Well, they look like they're from a video game, Yeah, for they sure. look shitty. It looks it like it's... It's some of the worst CGI I've ever yeah. seen. But it was kind of cool. Like, they're zipping around, like, disappearing yeah. and reappearing. And um, they do this whole thing where they, like, really slowly and really heavy-handedly, like, make you realize that, they, you know, these two people get trapped at this portal and they're going to try to escape. And yeah. these monsters are hammering on the other side of this door and they, like... They're like, well, it's either it's either going out there and facing them, or we try going through this portal. And they just sort of like guess that it's a portal, like it's just a shimmering field. And guys, like it's a portal. Uh, I bet it'll take you anywhere. And then and like, then they, and then they mention Slaughterhouse Five. They mention Slaughterhouse Five, and they just mention like, like punching you in the face with that reference. Like, okay, we'll try to get it to take us right to the front of this place, and then it does. But it turns out it's like back in '59, and the military finds them, and they take them back into the dungeon, and they lock them up. And then they and show then they that throw them on meat hooks. They throw them on like, meat into hooks. Into the back. And then they show that like it's them. Like they went back in time, mutated into the monsters that were just trying to kill them, were locked away in this cave. And then yeah. when they in the future come back and open the cave, they unwittingly unleash themselves. And yeah. then they have to try to survive the, an attack by themselves. And the way that they show this is, like, earlier in the movie, the female lead, they talk about how she has, like, an angel wing tattooed on her neck. And so when they throw these two, like, hideous monsters, like, up on the meat hooks, one of them just, like, lifts its head and moves it to the side for no reason, <laughs> and they show an angel tattoo on its neck. As if you didn't already get it. Right. And then you're just like, <laughs> oh, man, it was them the whole time. Like, they were the As monsters. As if you didn't figure that out 20 minutes before yeah. that that was going to be them. But then also, like, they 20 minutes before that, it was, like, a weird college, like, sex movie, like, where they're yeah. just, like, fooling around on a mountainside. And yeah. ugh, I don't fucking know. They did, like, yeah. a bunch and then, of... Uh, there was also the scene where the two of them, they put down the camera, and most of the shot is just the side of the mountain. Yeah. But then it's the two people talking, and then the people in the background not looking. And I immediately am like, wait, I should probably be looking at this mountain, because some kind of monster is going to run by, right? Sure. And then, lo and behold, two monsters, kind of like, 
<laughs> yeah. like kind of like triaps across the mountain and then hide behind some rocks it looks so fucking oh my stupid God. I'm, I, I honestly missed that I didn't even notice yeah. that because I was like oh yeah the second I attention. saw the shot that they were doing I was like found footage movie they're definitely going to show the creature in the background yeah. before anybody else sees it right um there's that uh fuck what oh yeah they also like mention uh i remember this the philadelphia experiment which they mm-hmm. talk about on the yes. q and anonymous podcast yes was that the alpi alec episode or something uh i don't remember but i remember yeah. hearing about it and i yeah. i actually th- that would be another really funny episode to do yeah not that this episode was funny i feel like it wasn't funny at all but that would be another interesting episode yeah. to do like people getting like zapped and like fusing with the hull of a ship and yeah. all for teleportation. So they turn it from like a Dyatlov Pass conspiracy movie, and then at the last minute, like the conspiracy is like switched to the Philadelphia experiment, yeah. and the yeah. plot is actually summarized by saying it's it's actually that. So it's like yeah. wrong conspiracy. It's not the Yeti or anything. It's actually the Philadelphia experiment. But here in Russia, yeah. and it made monsters, and that's the Atlov Pass. Yeah, the Soviets tried to do the same thing that the Americans did with the... <laughs> and they <laughs> couldn't even do that right. Wah, wah. Yeah. And it was just like, what the <sighs> fuck, dude? Yeah, this was <laughs> yeah, some kind like of movie. Yeah, so much happening at the end. Like, they just kept yeah. shifting tone. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot, for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. I mean, is that it? Yeah. I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half. I don't have any more notes. Yeah, it's oh, like an I guess, hour Oh, I guess I will say, I think I forgot to say this last time, I watched Aquaman. Oh, you did? So just a little DCEU update. You yeah. know, I'm going to keep doing that sure. as I watch. Hell yeah. That uh, that was probably the best one. Yeah. The it's not bad, one. right? It's fun. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an awesome part where a bunch of crab people are, yeah. like, fighting. Dude, I didn't get to that part. I still haven't finished it. I, it's taken really? me so long to yeah. watch that movie. Yeah, that one still took me two two sittings. I watched it. Yeah. Uh, I started out on a Friday, and then I think I finished on Saturday. I can't. Um, I can't ever yeah. finish those movies in one sitting. I never yeah. can. I mean, yeah, I, I look at it the same way as that uh, famous uh, old Trump tweet, where he said, um, "You know, the people at Coca Cola are mad at him for saying something." He said, "That's all right. I'll still keep drinking that garbage." Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah. pretty much how I feel about superhero fair movies. enough yeah. yeah i'll still keep drinking that garbage yeah well on that note uh thanks again for listening folks um as always you can find links to our twitter feeds on yep. the episode description uh all of our music again is done excuse me <laughs> all of our music <laughs> is done by interesting times gang you can find their Bandcamp as well on our episode description itgang.bandcamp.com um, yep. and if yep. you like what we're talking about you like the show you don't like the show you want to hear us talk about something that you want to talk about uh, yep. you're just like super down to talk about DC movies with Evan um, drop us a line we would love to hear yep. from you and until next time um, oh, uh, that actually reminds me I did get our first uh, listener request did you really? Oh. Yeah, I'll tell you about the offline but Okay. Yeah, it's a secret. Yeah. So mind your own fucking business. Yeah, fuck uh, off, losers. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Uh well uh yeah, also uh please if Jesus. you enjoy it, um Shut the fuck up. You're the, <laughs> always the one who takes forever to say goodbye. Um uh give us I a I just don't uh, like goodbyes. Just rate and review us on uh iTunes if you enjoy it. That uh that helps us with the algorithm. Yes, please do. Um, we know most of you are out there not doing that, and that's okay. But um, if we you do did look that poorly upon you, if, if you, you did that, it would honestly make a huge difference. If everybody that listens to the show liked yep. us on on iTunes, it would be huge for us. Follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You could follow us on Twitter. 
Um, that's also cool. And yeah. any of this stuff would be – it's a legitimate help, and it's pretty easy. So we, we do ask yeah. if you're able to. Um, Shouts yeah, out our buddy Matt, always pumping us up. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out All to right, Matt. Anyway. Yeah, shout out, Matt. Yep. Hey, Matt. All right, guys. Until next time. Peace. We love you. Peace.